0: Well good evening and great to see you all here tonight and if you'd like to read ahead for Sunday we'll be back in the book of Acts and it's a very interesting passage we're going to be looking at as we're going to be studying Paul taking advantage of his citizenship when the government uh, was seeking to oppress and abuse him so I don't know that there's any application for us in these days but I think it's a rather timely word so if you'd like to read ahead Acts 16 35 to 40 will be our verses this Sunday morning. Well, tonight, we've got a dandy. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 17, 1 through 30 will be our verses. We've got a big chapter. We'll take it in two bites uh, this week and next. And it's a very familiar story, one that is so familiar. Believer and unbeliever are aware of at least the participants of what we look at tonight, as they are with many other things in the Bible. You'll rarely find a place in the world where someone hasn't heard of Adam and Eve and the forbidden fruit. Most believe it to be some, uh, an apple of some kind, but the Bible doesn't tell us there was an apple, just as the Bible doesn't say Jonah was swallowed by a whale. God prepared a great fish. Some stories are just world-renowned. And the fact is, most people have heard of Noah and the flood, except, of course, the people at NBC, who in their recounting of the flood had uh, Moses and Noah working on the project together. So obviously they need to study the book a little bit closer. Most of the world knows about the parting of the Red Sea. Most of the world knows about the Ten Commandments. Most of the world has heard about Daniel and the lion's den, Jonah and the whale, Jesus walking on water. And just about every person has heard at least some recounting of the story of David and Goliath. Now, Tonight, we're going to talk about what the world doesn't know about this famous historical event. We're going to look at the backstory, so to speak. Now, in our uh, text last time, we found the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and the Lord had sent a distressing spirit upon Saul to trouble him. And as I said last time, I believe that was meant to grieve him into repentance. Now, when the spirit departed from Saul, we're also told that the spirit came upon David and his anointing and it stayed with him from that day forward. It never would depart from King David, even though King David would have his own errors in his life. Now, we also made note that instead of encouraging Saul to repent because of the distressing spirit that came upon him, his servants suggested that they find a musician who can come and play soothing music in order to make King Saul feel better in his unrepentant and sinful state. Now there's a message in and of itself for another time. Now one of Saul's servants mentioned one of the sons of Jesse and noted that he was a skillful musician and he was sent for, and he also just happened to be King Saul's future replacement. And as David was sought out, Sent to Saul, he came, as you remember, bearing gifts for the king. And when David played his harp, the distressing spirit would leave Saul and he would feel better. Now that reminds us of a couple of things. One, the power of praise and worship. There is power in singing praises to the Lord and music that is God-honoring. Amen? But it also reminds us that the Lord moves in mysterious ways. Now, Job would say in 9.10, he does great things past finding out, yes, wonders without number. Is, still, is God still doing wonders today? Yes, and we still can't figure him out how he moves today. Amen? Amen? Just checking. Now, Saul is distressed by a spirit, and David is blessed in the spirit. One was a man after his own desires and will. And the other was a man after God's own heart. Now, it is interesting how God begins to move in this 25-year transition from King Saul to the reign of King David. He brings the man after his own heart right into the very presence of the man who lived for himself and his own will. And the distressed king, who had spent all of his time doing his own thing, rejecting and revising the will of God, he brings King David in to soothe him and play his soothing music for him now as we discussed sunday there's a reason that god has left us here there's a reason that he doesn't just take us home the minute we get saved i think that'd be a kind of a nice thing don't you get saved and go to heaven that works for me but the fact is the lord has left us here for a reason and in a sense we could say as we're told in the beatitudes that we are blessed by being peacemakers and this is a role that david was playing he was bringing peace into the heart of a man who had been greatly disobedient to the will and word of God in hopes again of bringing about saul's repentance that never came now there is to be fruit from our lives that God wants to bring forth and he does this in ways that is beyond finding out ways that we can't uh, and don't have the ability to discover or discern like sending David in to soothe king saul the same man who would later repeatedly try and kill king david now verses tonight contain one of my favorite verses in all of scripture and i've been reminding you of it in previous weeks and messages and it reveals to us the god-honoring confidence that david had and this was a manifestation of his love for the lord it was something that paul would later write and exhort us to do and it is at least our title half of it is our title what paul would later write tonight and our title is simply be strong in the lord be strong in the lord now paul would give us this phrase in ephesians 6 10 where he said finally my brethren be strong in the lord and in the power of what his might now this is actually a two-part message in the first part of paul's statement is our title tonight. Be strong in the Lord, and guess what next week's title is? In the power of his might. We'll talk about David's encounter with Goliath, or as in the Hebrew, Goliath, next week. Now, let me ask you is there still giant slaying power available in the life of the Christian? I believe that too. Is there still that kind of strength available to us in such a time? as this. Well, of course there is. How do we know that? Because the Lord doesn't change. And tonight we're going to find out how to access this kind of strength when facing the giants of our own day, and how we too can be strong in the Lord and walk in the power of his might, as we'll see next week. So we've got 30 verses to cover, so let's jump right in, beginning with verses 1 through 11. And as always, would you stand in honor of the infallible and inspired word of God, and read with me please, First Samuel 17, we'll start with verses 1 through 11. Verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and they had camped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes-Damin. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had, a bronze, he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, And on his iron spearhead, and his iron spearhead weighed six hundred shekels, and his shield bearer went before him. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us and the philistine said i defy the armies of israel this day give me a man that we may fight together when saul and all israel heard these words of the philistine they were dismayed and greatly afraid you may be seated now just six weeks ago having stood in the valley of elah i think our mind often pictures the thing a little bit smaller than it actually is. We see two armies on opposing hillsides and then a small valley, at least in our mind's eye, where Goliath would stand and challenge the armies of Israel. But the fact of the matter is the valley is huge and the armies on opposing sides would look like ants off in the distance when one stood on the mountainside looking at the other. However, (laughs) there's a rather large man standing down in... (laughs) In the valley. Now, between the armies stood a man that is identified as the champion of Gath, Goliath by name. We're told he stood six cubits and a quarter, or a span as it's written. Now, a cubit was simply the distance between the tip of the elbow and the tip of the middle finger. And there were official cubits in some provinces around the world. There was a Roman cubit and a Greek cubit. 19 and 18 inches, respectively. But the fact of the matter is, most of the estimates are, including the span of a hand being around nine inches from the thumb to the tip of the pinky, that this man was estimated to be at a height somewhere around nine foot two to nine foot nine. Now, even from a distance, this was an intimidating sight standing down in the valley. We're then told he's arrayed in a bronze helmet which made him most likely look even taller. And then he's wearing a coat of mail, a series of metal rings connected to one another. And the weight that is given to us is about 200 pounds. This guy's wearing a 200 pound jacket to say nothing of everything else he has with him. He's got bronze armor to protect his legs. And the 17 pound spearhead was so heavy it needed a shaft that was likened unto a weaver's beam the main support beam of a loom in order to bear up the weight and then he had a shield bearer who went before him now think about all this and the intimidating sight of this man over nine feet tall who could maneuver easily in a coat wearing 200 pounds carrying a spear with a 17 pound spearhead he himself had to weigh eight to nine hundred pounds. If you add his coat and all his battle array, you've got a seasoned warrior standing in the valley representing over a half a ton of fighting machine. Now, not only that, his armor would be glistening in the morning sun, giving him an even more fearful appearance, as he was saying to Israel in paraphrase let's settle this one-on-one i'll represent the philistines you send a man out to fight me and the winner will get the spoil and the other will serve that nation now verse 11 says saul and israel were dismayed and greatly afraid at this challenge i think saul's name is isolated there and he's not just included with the rest of israel for a very good reason And that is back in 1 Samuel 9, 1-2, when we're told of Saul, and he's introduced to us as a man of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekoroth, the son of Aphaiah, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. He had a choice and handsome son, whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among all the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the other people. Now think about this. I think Saul was dismayed because the only rifle candidate to fight the biggest guy in the Philistine army was the biggest guy in the Israeli army. And guess who that was? That was Saul, head and shoulders taller than everybody else. Now, here's the first thing I want you to consider tonight is we are engaged in spiritual warfare today. Amen? The enemy is attacking today. He is relentless today as he has always done in time past. He is seeking those whom... He may devour, and he roams the earth like a roaring lion, seeking to do just that. Now, here's a point of recognition. Here's the first thing I'd like you to jot down. Listen, spiritual attacks often include the intimidation of the flesh. Spiritual attacks often include the intimidation of the flesh. Now, Goliath was certainly an intimidating sight, a massive human being, uh, one of the giants of the days of old, quite clearly. He's dressed in a way that would be intimidating in and of itself. Few men probably even weighed as much as the coat that he wore, the 200-pound coat of mail. Now, there can certainly be physical threats today and intimidation, but that's not the entire scope of what our point is pointing us to. Now, the enemy's efforts, like Goliath, are to make us his servants. That's what the devil wants us to do. He wants us to submit to his will he wants us to worship him as we'll see happens during the tribulation period when all the world prostrates and submit themselves before the beast and by the way we're going to be out of here we're not going to have to decide whether or not to take the mark of the beast amen now he wants us to serve him which Saul and Israel are already doing in a sense in that They are operating in the spirit of fear. And 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of, who knows the next word? Power, love, and a sound mind. Now, the enemy seeks to intimidate us into being paralyzed by the fears of the flesh. Now, he will stand in the valley of Elah figuratively and oppose us today, and say to us, listen, if you say anything about Jesus to that person, you're going to lose that friendship. And he appeals to our emotional side. He says, if you say anything about sin as defined by the Bible, you're going to become an outcast. And people are going to call you a bigoted hater. He uh, tries to use our need for acceptance of others against us and make us submit to his will. He says to us, listen, if you just fudge a little bit on that business deal, you're going to land the account. But if you don't fudge the numbers, you're going to lose the business and it will cost you the deal. He is constantly trying to intimidate us, he is constantly trying to appeal to our flesh. Now, we've got a rather significant proof text in Job 2 3 to 10, where the Lord said to Satan after he asked him where he'd been, and he said, walking to and fro back. And forth upon the earth, and the Lord said to Satan, "If you considered my servant Job, and that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, and still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without a cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, "Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. I stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and flesh." And he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he who took and he took for himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of ashes. Then his dear and beloved wife gave him wise counsel. Gee, thanks, honey. Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Wow. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? In this, Job did not sin, what? With his lips. Satan was afflicting his flesh to try and get spiritual compromise in the life of Job. He had already lost everything in the span of an hour. he had lost all he had and all those that he loved except his dear wife who was an awful counselor. And he'd already lost everything. And now the enemy seeks to engage in the battle by touching his flesh. So the Lord gives him limitation. And then the devil begins to exploit the most sacred of all relationships. As his own wife turns against him. And tries to get him to curse God. Which was what the devil wanted him to do in the first place. So his wife and marriage are then drawn into the fray so to speak now yet we read of job not sinning with his lips even after he had lost everything and everyone except for his wife again but then we're told this about job at the end of chapter one in 20 to 22 job arose tore his robe shaved his head he fell to the ground and did what he worshiped he prostrated and submitted to the lord when Satan was trying to get him to prostrate and submit to him by cursing the Lord. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Read the last sentence with me, please. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Listen, we are in a spiritual battle. Yet the spiritual battle often breaches the realm of the flesh To make fear our master again, which is not a spirit the Lord has given us. Now, we mentioned in a previous message, Satan's favorite kind of Christian is one that he can intimidate into silence. The one that he can intimidate by the flesh into doing or saying nothing. Now, the fact is he uses our flesh and our natural emotional and mental desires and pursuits more than he does spiritual oppression because it works far more often. The fact of the matter is, Satan does oppress today. Right? Have you ever had one of those times where you just felt like something's wrong? You just got out of bed like that? Does anybody know what I'm talking about tonight or is this a testimony? Yeah, you've all had those times. You just get up and it's like, what happened? Lord, where are you? Something's wrong. What did I do? I don't feel right. But the fact of the matter is, Satan comes through our flesh more often because when he oppresses us, it usually drives us to prayer. More often he's successful in driving us to sin when he tempts us in the flesh and seeks to intimidate us by the things that he does. Now, but like Job and unlike Saul, we can be strong in the Lord and the power of his might and we can face the giant sized intimidations of the enemy with the same confidence and even the indignance that we're going to see in David in a moment. Now, first john 2 16 reminds us for all that is in the world the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the father but is of what it is of the world now this has been the tactic of satan since the garden he appealed to eve's fleshly appetite she saw that the fruit was good and that it was pleasant to the eyes then he told her you know what you can be as wise as god knowing good and evil And she ate of it as he was appealing to her pride of life and lusts of the flesh. Now he's still at it today. But you and I can be strong in the Lord and we can pull down this stronghold that the enemy constantly uses to try and get us to serve him. To doubt God. To question God. To be intimidated in the realm of the flesh either into silence or disobedience. And as we mentioned a few weeks ago in our study years ago in the book of nehemiah when the enemy invites you down to the plains of oh no you just say oh no i'm doing a great work i cannot come down amen now look at 12 through 21 now david was the son of the Ephrathite of bethlehem judah whose name was jesse who had eight sons and the man was old advanced in years in the days of saul the three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shema. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistine drew near and presented himself forty days, morning and evening. Then Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an Ipa of this dried grain and these ten loaves, and run to your brothers at the camp. And carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousand, and see how your brothers fare, and bring back news of them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep of the keeper, and took the things and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to to the fight and shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. Now, when David would play the music for Saul, and Saul was soothed and his trouble uh, since stopped, he would return home to the task of keeping his father's sheep. Now, Jesse, we're told, was an old man in the days of Saul. And as an old man, he became concerned about his three oldest boys who had followed Saul to the battle theater. Now, on one of David's return trips home, Jesse loaded him up with some fresh bread and dried grain and sent him to his brothers to make sure they were getting enough to eat and that they were okay. And he was seeking a report back from young David. Now... I think it's interesting that he also sent 10 pieces, and the literal translation is, of soft cheese to their captain in an effort to make sure that his boys had favor with the captain and they were looked out for and maybe even considered for promotion. Now, in verses 19 to 21, we're told that there were certainly skirmishes going on between the armies, even as the 40 days of night and day challenges or morning and evening challenges by the Philistine champion that had gone on prior to David's arrival. Now, in 1 Peter 3, 13 to 15, we're, mind, we're reminded, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are what? Blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who ask you a reason for the hope that is in you? With this attitude, with meekness and fear—not fear of them, but fear of the Lord. Now, our second reminder to be strong in the Lord comes from the actions of David in verse 20. He's already been anointed as king over Israel. The Spirit of God has already come upon him. And when David was asked by his father to go check on his sons and bring provision to them as a bribe, or I mean as a gift for the captain, the fact is David didn't say, hey, wait a minute, I'm the anointed king over Israel. Hey, I'm the one who plays soothing music for King Saul, the current king that I'm later going to replace. Why should I act like some kind of errand boy and go check on my brothers who are actually my future subjects? That's not what David said. But what David did was he arose early in the morning. He made sure the sheep were cared for, which had been given into his charge or responsibility. He gathered what his father had told him to gather, and he took it and headed out to obey his father's command. Now, I thought this interesting that we have two men in scripture who bear coveted monikers that we all should pursue and even desire. You have a man after God's own heart, and long before him a man named Abraham, who is called the friend of God. I want you to consider something that happened in Abraham's life. In Genesis 22, 1-3, to we're told it came to pass after these things that God did what? What did he do to Abraham? He tested him. And he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham... Did what? Rose early. What did David do? Rose early. In the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of the young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering. He arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Now, again, Abraham didn't say, Lord, this is an unreasonable request. You said I would have descendants like the stars in the sky and the sands of the sea in number. And here I've got one son, and now you're telling me to offer him as a sacrifice, and here I am a hundred years old. Well, what did he actually do? He rose early. He got up first thing in the morning to do what the Father had commanded him. Now, in Hebrews 11:17 to 19, we're also reminded by faith Abraham when he was what? When he was tested, offered up Isaac And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. In other words, Isaac was as good as dead because Abraham was going to carry through on what the Lord had commanded him to do. But we need to remember, as a side note, as we studied on Sunday in Jeremiah Human sacrifice is an abomination to the Lord and it has never come into his mind. He does not want us offering humans in sacrifice to him. Now, he was testing Abraham because Abraham needed to be proven. And therefore, Abraham, as he was tested, he arose early in the morning to obey the command of God, even as David rose early in the morning to command to obey the command of his father. Now, here's the point of application for you and I from these two great men of God who bear titles given them by the Lord that we should all covet and desire. Now, here's the next thing to remember. Listen, simple acts of obedience will always lead to greater spiritual strength. Simple acts of obedience will always lead to greater spiritual strength. Now, Obviously, Abraham's act wasn't quite as simple of an act as David's. David was simply told to carry some bread, grain, and some cheese for the captain over to the battlefront. The testing of Abraham was far greater, to be sure. However, if David or Abraham's stories would have read any differently, their lives would look different downstream. Their lives would have looked different later in the Bible's narrative. Now, what David will say and do in our verses next week are predicated on what David does and says in our verses this week. And we need to remember the same principle is true for us. Disobedience to God's word weakens us. It weakens us for the battle. We find ourselves facing the giants of life with less confidence and boldness because we have grieved the spirit within us and we wonder is god still with me is god going to be with me rather than having the radical confidence we'll see in david in a moment we begin to wonder have i gone too far am i going to have the strength that i need to endure this or to make this decision or take this action because i have disobeyed the lord now this is why the enemy has infiltrated the thinking of so many within the church today and convinced them that obedience is actually nothing more than human efforts to merit salvation, which is anything but the truth. Now, Second Corinthians 10, 4-6 reminds us, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is full. Now, being obedient to the word of the Lord empowers us to pull down strongholds and cast down enemy arguments and even punish disobedience, which is actually a military term, which means to discipline the troops. Now, what that actually means for our understanding is that when discipline of another believer is in order, your own obedience keeps you from being a hypocrite when you offer a word of correction to a fellow believer. Now, obedience weakens us with guilt. Are you there? Obedience weakens us with guilt. It makes us wonder if God is going to stand with us, which, as David said, even if I make my bed in hell, even there, your hand will guide me. But the fact is, when we are filled with guilt and shame, We know that we have been disobedient and that is the end result of it. Therefore, conversely, obedience empowers us with confidence and boldness like we see in God's friend Abraham and the man after his own heart, David. And though he has no divinely assigned moniker, Job would walk well in the company of these two other men as well. For in all that he experienced, he did not sin and charge God with wrong. So as we face the efforts of the enemy to get to our spirit via our flesh. We need to remember to rise in the morning each day and walk in obedience no matter how many times the enemy threatens us day and night and challenges us to do otherwise. To obey is better than sacrifice. Is that not what Samuel told disobedient Saul? Now, let's move on and get to one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. 22 to 30 will be our final section. So let's pick up the reading there. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army, and came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? That's the part I like. And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now, Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, Why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Isn't that a typical big brother, little brother uh, exchange? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another and did the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. Now, David arrives at the battle theater, leaves his travel gear with the supply keeper, takes the bread and grain To his brothers, he greets them, and Goliath makes his morning appearance and mockery of the armies of Israel. And this time David hears him, and he sees the army flee before Goliath in dreadful fear. Now the men of Israel say to one another, Man, did you see that guy who comes to defy Israel? Boy, the king is really going to reward the one who kills him, give him his own daughter and great riches, and even give them and exemption from taxes. Now, then David says to those nearby, what will be done for the one who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? And then he adds, and I'm paraphrasing, who does this guy think he is, defying the armies of the living God? The men answer, David with what they just discussed among themselves concerning the reward for killing Goliath. Now, David's older brother Eliab immediately admires David's courage and begins to encourage him and commend him for standing up the way he has. No. Eliab gets mad at David and says, you only came here to see the fight because of the wickedness that's in your heart. That's what the phrase insolence means. Now, There's a kind of a curious picture here. David was sent by his father to his brethren and his own received him not, making him a type of Christ in the Old Testament. Now, David's reply to Eliab's false accusation will give us our final takeaway for tonight, where David says to Eliab Eliab and then those around him, is there not a cause? Isn't there a just cause is the heart of his question. (coughs) Now to David, the cause was not the reward from the king. To David, the cause was the armies of the living God were being defied by the champion of a pagan kingdom. And thus David's statement, who is this guy? How dare he defy the armies of the living God, this uncircumcised Philistine. Now in Psalm 56, 4, King David would later write, in God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can what? What can flesh do to me? Now, what David later wrote, he already believed when he was facing the lion and the bear who were trying to steal sheep from his father's flock. And now, as he faces Goliath, he still believes the same thing. What can flesh do to me? I trust in God and praise his word. I will not fear now this brings us to our last consideration concerning being strong in the lord and this is something i think we need to recognize and remember and employ in these last days listen we will be opposed for defending god's name but we will never be defeated we will be opposed for defending god's name but we will never be defeated now, this is one of the things, I believe, that made David a man after God's own heart. Even when David failed the Lord, even when the Lord chose David, knowing he would later fail him and sin greatly. The Lord also knew something else about David when he did sin and was confronted, as we're told in 2 Samuel 12, 11 to 14. Thus says the Lord, Nathan speaking, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you, from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes, and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against who? The against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme The child also who is born to you shall surely die. Now, let me pause here for a moment because this is a bit of a difficult situation for many to understand. And the fact is, the Lord did not punish the child for David's sin because taking someone to heaven is never punishment. The fact was, this was an act of mercy on God's part because Nathan had just told David, you did this in secret. You slept with Bathsheba in secret. You sent Uriah to the front lines and nobody knew except you and your general and you had him killed in secret. But I'm going to expose this to the whole country. Can you imagine what that young boy's life was going to be like? So the Lord simply took him home. We know we took him home because after his death, the servant said to David, why were you moaning and groaning and wouldn't eat and wouldn't bathe while the child was sick? And now that he's dead, you ask for a change of clothes. You take a bath and you send for food. Why? When the child was dying, you were acting that way and now he's dead, you're acting this way. And David said that he cannot come to me, but I will go to him. David understood that his son was now in the presence of the Lord. The child was not punished for David's sin. The Lord in his mercy took him home to avoid the ridicule that he would have faced all the days of his life. Now, The main point of this exchange is that David understood his sin was against the Lord. And it was this fact that drove him to confess his sin when he was confronted by Nathan. David loved the Lord, and David failed the Lord that he loved greatly. And it was against the Lord that all sin is committed, even when it hurts other people. Now, here's the thing. When the Lord's name and glory is our primary concern, we can face the giants of opposition with boldness and confidence knowing the lord will always defend his great name and he never loses any battles and i have great news for you tonight the lord's never even had a close call there's never been a tie in any of his battles the lord is always victorious amen now in ezekiel thirty-six twenty-two to 23 we're told therefore say to the house of israel Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. Lord still speaking, and I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, and the nation shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. And then he goes on in chapter 37 to speak of the rebirth of the nation of Israel after being spread and scattered among the nations for nearly two millennia. The Lord said, my name was profane when you were outside the promised land. And for my name's sake, I'm going to bring you back into the promised land and I will be hallowed in your eyes and the other nations shall know that I am the Lord. Listen, we are facing giant size opposition today. But the Lord is our strength and we too can face the adversity that we are facing today. The fact is the vast majority of world governments and most of the people in our nation and every other are against the church today. They're against what we stand for today. They're against the moral code that God has established that is unchanging throughout the history of the world until things come to an end. They are against what we believe. As a matter of fact, the story just from today, attorneys for the nonprofit Alliance Defending Freedom just filed a lawsuit on behalf of the Cedar Park Assembly of God Church of Kirkland near Seattle. Over a Washington state mandate that was passed a year ago, Senate Bill 6219 requiring employers who provide maternity care in their group insurance to cover elective abortions as well. The state government was forcing the church to pay for abortions. And in fact, that's just how Vice President Kevin uh, Theriot of the Alliance Defending Freedom termed it. In a press release announcing the suit, he said, Washington state has gone out of its way to bully churches and other religious nonprofits to violate their beliefs by paying for abortions. The Supreme Court has consistently held that government hostility toward people of faith is unconstitutional and has no place in our society. The state's policy crushes dissent and violates the Constitution's free exercise clause by targeting Cedar Park's entirely legitimate internal policies and religious beliefs, he said, we are under attack today. And we need to have the defiant attitude of David. We are to be good citizens, there's no question about it. But we need to have in our hearts the willingness to say, who are these uncircumcised Philistines who dare defy the armies of the living God? And listen, when we stand for the word of God, the God of the word stands with us. He may let things advance for a while further than we would like him to. He may allow sinful things to progress further than we are comfortable with, but make no mistake, when God's name and glory are being defined, he is going to act. And history proves it to be so. Just look at the reborn nation of Israel today. Now, I'll close with this. God is getting ready to act in a way that is unparalleled in the course of human history. There is coming a time upon the whole world that the Lord himself said, if these days were not short, no flesh would survive. God is going to judge this sinful and Christ-rejecting world, and there's no question about it. But as, as, as is his precedent and pattern throughout the Old Testament, God has established the fact that he removes the righteous before he pours out his judgment on the world. Even so, come get us, Lord Jesus. Now, mankind has largely denied that God is the creator of all things. So he's going to use his creation to judge mankind and prove he is in complete control of it. If you read through the book of Revelation, especially the great and terrible day of the Lord, the last three and a half years, all seven years are the wrath of God. The consequential wrath of God in the first three and a half and the cataclysmic wrath of God in the last half, the undiluted wrath of God, he is using not human weaponry, he is using the cosmos, he is using the uh, atmospheric events, he is using the earth itself to bring about judgment on men, even opening up portions of the earth and the other things that we see in the last half of the tribulation. I think it's kind of funny that here we've got all this press about global warming and climate change. And supposedly by Sunday, it's finally going to be 70 degrees in the Los Angeles basin for the first time in six weeks. Do you know that it never reached 70 degrees in LA during the month of February, which was a 132 year old record? You know, it's kind of funny that here, we've got this Arctic uh, jet stream moving through the Midwest there's record snow all over the place. Seattle, which gets an average of 0.9 inches of snow a year, has had almost two feet. This global warming is going to freeze us to death if we're not careful. It is funny how man in his feebleness challenges God when God, listen, God gave a promise. Look it up in Genesis 8:22, And he said, listen, as long as there's a planet, I'm going to water it. The sun's going to come up. And I'm going to maintain the order of everything I set in motion at initial creation. Read it for yourself, Genesis 8.22. Yeah, there's going to be seasons where it doesn't rain as much as it used to. Yeah, there's going to be seasons where it rains more than it normally does. Yeah, it's going to be colder sometimes. Yeah, it's going to be hotter sometimes. But God has his hand on the thermostat. And he said, I'm going to take care of that giant dirt clod until I come back and destroy it and make a new one in which righteousness dwells. Now, there's a lot of evil going on in our world, and the one line we must never allow ourselves to cross is to defy or defame the name of the living God and to approve of it. It is the one line, whereas we will see on Sunday that you and I have a biblical obligation to stand up for the name of the Lord, and when we stand for Him, He is going. To stand for us think about in the book of acts remember the stoning of stephen we're told throughout scripture that jesus is seated at the right hand of majesty on high living daily to make intercession for you and i and yet stephen says i see the lord standing to receive him he was standing in honor of stephen's death the lord is always going to defend his great name even when he allows things that are unpleasant for us. And I'll remind you of something I reminded you of a couple of weeks ago and months before that and years before that. God's glory is more important than our comfort. We are here to give him glory. And when that is our goal, when that is our heart's desire, not even the gates of Hades can prevail against the Lord's church. Somebody say Amen. 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 Father, we are grateful for this magnificent recounting of this event and we thank you for what's coming thank you for the backstory tonight which we will see next week allow david to carry his attitude into the battlefield and defeat this one who defied the armies of the true and living god so lord we know that you have called us to be peacemakers you we know that you have called us to honor the king and pray for those who are in authority. But we also know that you have called us to place a limit on how far we will let things go as the people of God. And when you are challenged and you are denied, and we are told we can't speak of you, and we must pay for sin, it's time for us to take a stand. And we thank you for that mandate in scripture as well. So Lord, would you give us the reminder throughout this week as we face the giant opposition of our day to be strong in the Lord and next week see how we manifest the power of your might. We thank you again for this magnificent background story to one of the greatest stories in your word, that of a young boy fighting a nine foot plus tall giant and defeating him with a couple of sticks, a piece of leather and a rock just to prove that you, you are well in control of every situation. Help us to remember these things, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.